Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host as always. Thanks for joining me this week. Renoites is the podcast where I talk to all kinds of people from Reno and outside of Reno, northern Nevada, about what's going on in this area. Sometimes elected officials, nonprofits, arts organizations, a little bit of everyone. The goal is that this podcast can be for anyone who listens to podcasts who lives in northern Nevada. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome Gary McKinney. Gary is a resident of Owyhee, Nevada, which is a small town on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation up near the border of Idaho. It's about an hour north of Elko. Owyhee is located about 84 miles from a proposed lithium mine at Thacker Pass, an area known to the local indigenous community as Pihimaha. In this episode, we travel to Owyhee to meet with Gary, where we talked about the history of the area from its earliest days as a Pony Express mail route, the massacres at Pihimaha, the various and sometimes hidden incentives driving the green energy transition, the environmental impacts of mining in the area and around the world, and much, much more. The mine is currently under litigation with various lawsuits from tribes in the area, including the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, challenging the processes that were used to approve the mine. Since the recording of this episode, federal judge Miranda Dew has mostly ruled against the tribes, but a new lawsuit was just filed last week, and a lot of local journalists are covering what is happening currently with the mine. I appreciated the opportunity to head out to Owyhee and actually see the area that we were talking about in this episode, and grateful to Gary for coming on the show. If you have any suggestions for guests or episode topics, please let me know. Shoot me an email anytime. My address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com, and be sure to follow me on Instagram. You can also send me a message there. It is a very good way to get a hold of me. That is at Renoites on Instagram. And now this week's guest from People of Red Mountain, Gary McKinney. Gary McKinney, thank you for coming on Renoites. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So we are not actually in Reno. Renoites is a Reno-focused podcast, but we're recording this in the town of Owyhee, Nevada, which is a couple miles from the Idaho border. We're basically in like the northeast corner. People of Red Mountain is the organization that you're a part of. And the big thing we're going to talk about today is the proposed lithium mine at Thacker Pass. But to start, can you just tell me a little bit about where we are? This city, this reservation, this is the Duck Valley Indian Reservation. For people who are listening who've never been out this part of Nevada, can you just kind of talk about the land and where we're at? Sure. This is Owyhee. The town of Owyhee is within the boundaries of the Duck Valley Indian Reservation. And majority of the people here are Shoshone, but there are some Paiutes, and we're relative to the Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshones, and there's several other tribes that I can talk about too. The location that we're sitting at, there's the high school just right across the street from where I'm sitting right now. One of the structures here that I've always known to be around since childhood, and so it's good to kind of reflect back on the town in this way all these years later. This is one of the settling towns here from the late 1800s on into the 1900s. And so I'll be glad to get into that little bit of history there. Yeah, the history of this town. We just took a little walk around before we did this. And you talked kind of about the origins of this town. So can you talk a little bit about that kind of town come to be here? It sits off of the state highway. This state highway going up north is a mail route, is an old mail route from back in the Pony Express days. And that was something that was big back in the day. And so the things that are here, a lot of the structures that are still standing have the kind of ghost town-esque 
type feel to it because the rooftops are no longer there and the stonework is there, the history of the buildings, you know, the old cowboys around the area, the ranchers and the farmers, those were the types of families that were around and are still around today. And so you take a look around towards where the sunset was and we're looking back towards the west. Out in that direction is where Thacker Pass, the proposed site, is. So we're over here 84 miles away from that. And so there's a lot here in the reservation and Oahe has a lot of the happenings. There's the clinic where a lot of our community members will get their medical needs, you know. There's a grocery store here. There is a jail here. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is the agency that has control over the jurisdiction here. And so that's one of the jails here. It's the only one in northeastern Nevada and it holds about sixteen male inmates plus four women there. So it's a small place and it's not a big facility. It's always been that way going way back into the eighteen seventies when this area was being settled. Gotcha. A lot of what we're gonna talk about is kind of the land and whose who's land and your connection to the land. So can you tell me a little bit about your family and your history and kind of your personal connection to this area and this land? Yeah, I'm a Shoshone Paiute and our family history here, I talk about the my Paiute side of the family would be right there from the Fort McDermott Indian Reservation. And the history that I can talk about really where our Shoshone people would come from is we have roots to the Snake River area. And 1819 was when Donald McKenzie first made contact with our Shoshone tribes here in southwestern Idaho, northern Nevada. So the roots here to this land come from those old ties that we have to these other tribes. And we're Shoshones, but there's different bands. And so we have relatives over in Fort Hall. Those are Shoshones, Shoshone Bannocks. And we have relatives in... Wyoming, who are the Eastern Shoshones, while we're a Western Shoshone band. So our languages are the same. Our people are related through blood. And when I say blood related, I mean, we come from different branches of the same family tree. So that all is still intact if we talk about it within our families. And so my particular Shoshone side of the family comes from the beginnings of this reservation here. And to talk about a timeline, we'll say the Bannock War. Th- these are titles and things of the Bannock War. Can you can you explain that briefly, just what yeah. that is? I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I can. It was in 1878 where, you know, the whole ideas of transitioning from basically living on the land and living off the resources that were provided were transitioning to a, colon- a more colonized stage in our reservation history. The families that were here on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation were held at gunpoint to remain here. And if you go to websites like newspapers.com and search up the Bannock War in 1878, you'll see the newspaper clippings that were out back then. You'll get the narrative from who was around those days, like Charlie Thacker was one of the individuals, the gentleman that we can talk about with the Thacker Pass history. Charlie Thacker was one of the one of the baby boy survivors that that was, I'll say spared, their lives were spared after the 1865 September 12th massacre that we hear in, and we see today that's brought up in the Thacker Pass arguments. And so 
I'm talking about that history coming from the Shoshone side and how we can explain it. Uh, so the Bannock War was essentially something that our tribal leaders did to push back against the rations and things that were coming in, right? They weren't brought in in a good way. The Bannock War was said to have started over a wagon supply that was left out in the desert and it took the Indian agents here in Duck Valley or these other places, right? Our supplies came from Idaho and they were sent down to the forts from looking at things like the Idaho Historical Society. We find evidence of those, the remains, those old military forts that were set up between the 1864 and 1868 era to help protect the mail route from attacks and things of that nature. And so I say attacks because those are key words and things that you'll see that narrate what, what actually was going on. But it's different to have compassion and look at those narratives and understand that our people living on the land and there were elders, there were women and children. That's all we did, right? And so they were the ones who were the victims back then where we can tie the murdered missing indigenous women and relatives from those massacres and the remains of those massacres are what today the federal judges will brush aside as not important but these are the final resting places these areas have stories their due respect there's a lot of due respect to go towards those sites because like i say there there were women elders and children that were they were killed and it was because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so the Bannock War, it was the second part of what is the Snake War. And the Snake War happened between 1864 and 1868. A little side note is that the Civil War was something that happened in that same time area, 64, 65. The assassination of President Lincoln was April 15th of 1865. And there were 22 massacres that involved our women, elders, and children that are documented. And those are the things that you won't find on the maps. And those are the things that our people hold within our family circles. The more that mining proposals go up, a more subtle slap to the face. And it's like, well, these are the things that happen on the land. We're now on, on Indian reservations talking about how beautiful it is. But, you know, what is really beautiful is if you follow that sunset, you know, you're going to find places like Thacker Pass that's 84 miles from here. I talk about these things like this because when I talk about the wars and the battles that were happening with the atrocious histories and things, it'll be a little bit more um, softer, if you will, because, you know, these are things that happen to our people. They hurt and we talk about it and it's called generational trauma within our communities like boarding schools and in Canada they're called residential schools and these were places that were ran and operated by a specific religious group and they were to kill the Indian and save the man and so that broke a lot of our family trees and, and so it displaced more than what met the eye. So our roots are still there but our connections are still becoming revitalized the more that we talk about it, the more that the people hear from the inside what it looks like or what it, how beautiful it is. And that way, the true nature's value is radiating like that sunset. And it's not 
just something you're seeing on the news or if that mine goes up, it's awesome for the economy. It's great for the environment. But if the sunset is polluted, right, we're going to start seeing a little bit more red in that sunset. Things aren't going to be as natural. Those are the things we're wanting our our next seven generations, we'll say, to stay away from. We want to shield them from that. These are the things that need to be understood. This is the type of discussion and things that was left out and what people don't hear when minds like Thacker Pass are fast-tracked. And so let me kind of close that up, and I want to lead back into the two wars I mentioned. First, I'm going to mention again the Snake War, 64 to 68. And it was a war that was more like a guerrilla warfare. And it was like, like, like what gang culture is now is something like caught slipping, caught lagging, something like that is how it was back then. The Wild West, right? You don't want to be caught by the military fort people because you're going to get shot in the back. And that was what the war was. Those are Those words weren't put into the newspaper circulations back then. It was re- repeated throughout the nation that there was this uprising and that the Paiutes and the Bannocks were over here causing war. So this Duck Valley Inter-Reservation, our Shoshones were held here at gunpoint because of fear that it might make the quote-unquote army that our Paiute and Bannock relatives had. But it was the solidarity that we had, the understanding that we're really like in in a bad situation here. It's like, well, if we if we do join and join that those skirmishes or whatever to protect our people to make things right because nobody wants to nobody's going to eat rotten meat no one's going to eat things infested with flies and those are the things that were on the wagon that was left out there and so the uprising that was mentioned is a miswording misinterpretation of what actually happened and all credit due to generals like general crook general george crook and those generals is how you can tie in the military forts like Fort McDermott and there's Shurs and Pyramid Lake and all the way down to the Apache area. We have our relatives down there, the Apaches with the Apache stronghold who have a similar story with the military and none other than George Crook himself. And so you see him all over the West and you have on the one hand, the patriotic version of what was back then, right, was Indian fighters and in the Wild West and outlaws and things of that nature. And we were looked at like like savages. And so today, I guess, is speaking on how we weren't necessarily and how, how it really panned out is how we're able to look at, look around towns like Oahe and as long as we know and understand the history, I think we're off to a good start. And I think right now is something important because some of our people, right, don't feel like they're heard, don't feel like they're represented in any type of way. So, yeah, that's something that our history goes with the Fort McDermott and Fort Hall and the military forts that disappeared, like, like Camp Winfred Scott. Right, Camp Winfred Scott and these military forts, they have significance with their names. About 80 or so miles from the Oregon border, from south of the Oregon border, there was a camp called Winfred Scott, Camp Winfred Scott. 
and it was founded in or established in 1865. And these names of significance, like Winfred Scott was one of the soldiers that fought in the War of 1812. And that's something that you heard, you might have heard or been told in high school, in history class. And if you haven't, those are the things there that we have in our territory that is not being educated, not being not being taught, I should say. So Camp Whitfred Scott was in what was supposed to be a giant gardening area, surprisingly, like the what is now called the Paradise Valley. The story is that the settlers that were going around that valley, they looked upon that area and they said, wow, that looks like a paradise. We're going to call it Paradise Valley. And it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a huge garden. And after the snake war happened, that those old camps, Winfred Scott, Camp Winfred Scott was set up to help protect those routes, the mail routes from Indian attacks. These Indian attacks on, on the mail routes weren't anything like, like murders or anything happening. It was like the natives going out and cutting the telegraph lines so that these military forts weren't sending the wrong messages and sending the wrong impression of what was going on. And so a lot of our leaders like Winnemucca and his sons and relatives were fighting. They were asking for consultation between the government and our tribal leaders, but that was never being met. And so that was why our elder chiefs were upset, but they couldn't do anything. So that was really why it was these Indian reservations were settled by our people was to protect them from being massacred because if you're caught outside of this reservation back then it was trouble so looking out for the people in that sense that's what those leaders did and the boys right the sons are the ones that were the warriors and they led their peers to get answers it wasn't to go and find blood it was to find solutions that was left out when those stories were being parroted across the country and so that was what really kind of took the wind out of our tribe sales here in northern Nevada. And the tables were turning and the transition, the colonization started happening. And it wasn't until 1934 that our tribes became federally recognized with benefits, right? And so today, that's something that these lithium companies, for example, Lithium Americas will use community benefits agreements which is the 2023 version of Indian treaties. Will you give us this and we'll give you that and everything's good. And it's a big, it's a big dog and pony show with smoke and mirrors. And I say that because the media, right. And it's all greenwashed in, in how it's served up on a silver platter because there's so much money. There's so many people that's paid to give you that silver platter, right? Who paid for that silver platter there? Well, they mined the silver, actually, right? And that's not too far from the truth. And so that silver platter there is loaded with, with dead leaves that, that's painted green. And those are the things that that aren't justice. And we, I've met a lot of people that's um, big on environmental justice. And a few of those people I met are working for the EPA <laughs> and the Environmental Protection Agencies, the policies that are set up there aren't there to fully stop or fully prevent harm to be done to the environment. They're there to put put accountability to 
the companies that wanted to affect the environment. And so now this this whole game that, you know, that lithium mining and all this is going on, is it's all about money, right? So I think we could probably start talking about something a little bit more, a little less, what, let's say a little, uh, let's call it a little bit lighter. Huh? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think like a common thread among a lot of the stuff we've talked about is is trust and broken trust and promises that are not actually true and not actually followed through on. And a lot of what I've heard from you in other interviews and stuff is about the misconception, right? Like you were being sold something and you've explained that lithium battery technology and this green environmental shift is largely, it's financially driven. There is a lot of money in, I'm doing air quotes, green energy. Mm. And I'm not an energy policy expert. I don't know what is good or bad necessarily because you know i absorb all of the same kind of communications that everyone else does and this kind of difference in information that's presented to move forward an economic agenda for a private company versus i think what you've just done a little bit of is kind of the like oral history of actual events that is less focused on establishing a narrative that increases power for capitalist society and more about trying to find the truth and the reality of what actually goes on. Are you finding that in in recent years, there's been more stories on like the Indian schools, there's been more attention, it seems, to finding the truth and getting past a lot of the narratives that have been sold to people for a very long time. Are you finding that there is a little bit more attention or people wanting to know what's behind kind of the curtain? Yeah, let's shift gears because I get. I think now we could get into the more, the more common knowledge of it all, and let's get to that point where, you know, you hear this common knowledge, and it's okay. Ask yourself that question. Question everything I say from this point on, until we change gears again, because that's what that's what's gonna make this normal. So I, I can explain it a little from my understanding and from what I know. The green energy transition. Try looking at where this whole green energy strategy had come from. And we find that uh, Europe back in 2013 was one of the places where you can possibly trace it back when they were actually dumping their tailings from their extraction sites into the sea. And they found out that it was contaminating the water. Big surprise there. Can you tell me what tailings is? What is that? Tailings, yeah. Sorry, a tailings is waste left from the mining, the rock sediments that's broken down. It still contains harmful chemicals and debris and things like that, minus the minerals. So whatever's busted up on the ground right there, it contained gases and elements that wasn't compatible with the way that the biodiversity is in the sea. And so you started seeing declining, you might start seeing declining fish and the water might start turning a different color. And so, yeah, 2013 was in Europe. There was an article done that mentioned the tailings pile there was being dumped into the sea and whoever was overseeing the project red flagged it. And they said, you know what, we need to switch. We need to do something that's not dumping it into the sea. What can we do? all right, let's bring this big plastic tarp over here and we'll start dumping the, those chemicals and those, the tailings, the waste onto that thing. And that was their strategy. 
that was their transition from killing things to, okay, now we're safe. But now the whole thing is, well, the wind blows, the rain comes, the nature happens. What happens if that seeps through? So that whole strategy was looked at by different countries, different companies as a way to make more money. So you start seeing the term green energy transition come in from 2013 up until today. And the green energy transition is, is if there was justice, man, this case would be hung up on, on a hung jury, a mistrial, based on the 1872 general mining law that involved donkeys, pickaxes, and shovels that did all the mining in tunnels. And so it wasn't the same. Today in 2020s, we're seeing that same donkey law. I call it the donkey law. It's it's a donkey law, right, that is about to allow things like electric vehicles and lithium and all that to become a part of society when 1872 was before electricity and before the light bulb. And so it's like, well, time out. That does, that's, it's not logical to say it's okay based on that law. And all these mining projects here in Nevada can be based on that 1872 law. What would you like to see legally? Like, let's say that's an old law and we need something new. So what kind of like legal framework would you like to see around extractive industries? We have a world of extraction of both lithium and then all kinds of oil, gas, all these things. And I don't imagine that it's realistic that all of that is going to stop. So what kind of framework do you think is like realistic or feasible or would you like to see if they were to revisit how we restrict or how we manage the extraction industries? Right. So to get everyone's mind going, right, let's say that the 1872 uh, mining law, it's there and it seems like it's far away from us, right? And there's countless mining projects that looked at that thing because it's so far away and... They've had this whole time between then and now to figure out ways and strategies to get under those old things. And obviously we're starting to see that obvious contrast of how old versus how modern things want to be. It's that contrast there. Let's highlight it, right? And it's not me that's doing the highlighting. It's the thinking that you have and the thinking that the people who are listening, are they're making the wheels turn, you know, because the green energy transition is based on three roots you know the climate the climate crisis but the whole crisis the the roots in colonialism extractivism and capitalism there's a price on everything and you know that whole relationship between green and money is there right money don't grow on trees and there's so this whole idea of going green is bogus and it's it's something that I'm going to I'm going to talk about the lithium triangle for a quick minute. The lithium triangle is in South America between three three countries or th- three different provinces or states or how they are down there. Our relatives are are like us, right? They've been there in the in their areas on their landscape since time millennia. And so it's difficult to put boundaries and restrictions on them when we're fighting over here on our side to get away from those things and so I like to call them are relatives because that's the way we see them. And so our relatives down there, they're in the middle of the lithium triangle. They're Atacama Desert. And it's these lithium projects are projects to mine water. And 
What do you, what does that mean, mine water? A project to mine water. You see, there's 1.7 billion gallons of water that will go towards mining a year instead of crops, instead of ranchers, instead of producing tangible things that have been generational, right? Like ranches and things like that. Giving that up for this green energy transition. And so the whole transition is, you know, sacrifice, right? You give us this, we'll give you money and... Today, I guess the whole idea, I want to say between a lithium triangle and what is happening here is that there's not the same lax regulations and rules that, that are there in, in, in South America that are here. There are more structured rules and policies in place that should help protect endangered species and sacred sites and historic sites and those things. So the relatives in South America, that triangle there, it it's something that I want to mention as something that China is putting their hands on. And we, how many of these elements, what are the elements, what are the names of the elements of the minerals that go into these electric vehicles, these Teslas, the batteries, what are the minerals? Okay, we got lithium right we got lithium we got copper and cobalt just to name a few so i'm giving you these dots right and go make this connection draw the line connect the dots these minerals that are going into these electric vehicles have to be mined and i mentioned that in the lithium triangle there's these more relaxed rules and policies in place that allow for things like child labor to be done and minimal pay in, in America, you can call it in, involuntary servitude where, you know, you're working for a place, a company, and you cannot break away because you can't sustain your lifestyle that you've become comfortable with. You know, you can't afford the high charging bill for your Tesla if you don't work at that mine. And those are the things that we don't think about because we're being told on a silver platter, right? It looks enticing it looks good, but it's that, that forbidden fruit. You should refrain from taking a, a, a bite, right? But what these mining companies are saying is, well, you can nibble. It's not like you're in, you're indulging. It's like, well, it's like, well, you're, it's like putting candy in front of a little child and telling them, I'll be back. I'll be right back. They don't have that kind of patience. They're going to, they're going to grab it. That's something that, that we need to connect these dots and draw the lines and yeah it's real and that's what's happening this is the reality that's playing out in slow motion instead of fast tracking they should be standing still you can look at it like it's going slow motion now and they're not fast tracking it's not going fast now <laughs> it's not going so fast now once once people once the judge heard, heard about the endangered species that's in the crosshairs and it's like well is it worth it to sacrifice that life, that water, that area for electric vehicles? You know, that's a different form of child labor. It's a different form of, that's what I say, the American version of involuntary servitude. And that's like the American dream, you know. You have to be asleep to believe it. And that's something right now where a lot of folks are waking up and seeing things like, like that. Because it's going in slow motion now, and so just connect those dots to... Uh, talk a little bit more about the cobalt and the human rights violations and the child labor going on to retrieve that cobalt for your electric vehicles is being done 
in places like Africa, South Africa, where China owns a majority of those mines. And we talk about China being a big player in these newer mines. Mind you, China is a communist country. They can make huge investments without showing any immediate turnaround. They have that longevity. And so that's something that, that they have. And it's like a, like, like a, that's the hand that they have, right? And so to have a leader like Joe Biden standing in front of the, that TV and, and saying, you know, we, we want to become independent in this lithium trade, right? Then why does China own 19.9% of lithium Americas? A lot of the, uh, the investors that are supposed, you know, um, environmentally friendly, you know, a lot of these car manufacturers, you should know the cars you're selling, if they're electric, they're coming from a place where a little child mined that with his bare hands for pennies, for hours, for days, and he's not the only one of his family, his or her family that has been doing that to sustain his lifestyle, to sustain the food and the family. Those are the hardships that are happening today in other countries because of this green energy transition. The big thing that you were hearing in the streets when we were out there, you know, was um, you can't mine your way out of a climate crisis. The whole crisis is the colonialism, the capitalism, and the extractivism. And that right there is a huge crisis. And we're, we're allowing the money to influence over the well-being of Mother Earth's resources like water. You know, what if all the water was gone? What if all, it was all pumped dry? And this whole place was a desert, a wasteland. And that's what we don't want to see here in Nevada because it's already in a, in a dry region. We're already seeing cancer from already abandoned mines. And so the history of these policies and procedures failing is here in the form of Superfund sites like the Rio Tino copper mine that sits 14 and a half miles away from where we sit right now. And there's an abandoned mercury mine called the Cordero Mercury Mine that sits probably 25 miles north of Thacker Pass. And that there is still actively contaminating water. It's still showing contaminants that show up in our body that produce cancer in those are the things and the results that we have to live with after the abandonment or after reclamation. And that's the big word that they're using is reclamation, right? How good is reclamation? How good is reclamation in your project? And then what are the alternatives? Well, here's, we're, here's A, B, C, and D. And were any of those options ever talked about with our people? No, you know, th those are the things that belong to the people who are paid to have those discussions. But what about us? What about me? What about you? What about us? What about we? What about all of us? What about us is what they say. What about you? And we don't hold those qualifications to argue those things in court. And so using the time and space to reach out and to get back on the land because we're sitting about 350 miles from the city of Reno. And part of uh, the shift going on is the land back movement. You have to get back on the land to understand what is really at risk, right? The true yeah. negative impacts are, we're not going to see beautiful sunsets anymore with, without a mixture of, of smog or a mixture of tailings or chemicals that's in the sky. And 
we have our sacred birds that are in the area and there, there's an ecosystem the rain the precipitation the streams the springs it all uses that natural ecosystem that can afford to be shifted by man because it's like cloning a frog with using a lizard strand of dna it's not the same thing just just because you call it a frog doesn't make it it there's something in it that you changed and that goes to talk about how our dna has adapted to these chemicals and things we don't adapt we don't we get cancer and that's it and so it's like well let's talk about those cancer rates then let's talk about those surveys that never happened right because since these experts specialists and engineers talk so highly about being good people or caring about the environment take a time out come out here on your day off and do a survey on the land of how contaminated the water is or where it all comes from and then take that back to a federal courthouse setting and argue that because then you're doing something for the people then you're representing what needs to be changed you're not putting paying money to influence it and you're not sugarcoating we're we need to face what's what these what these minds have been doing and what they're going to keep doing if we don't say something right yeah i do i want to talk to you about who gets to like who gets to make the decision who we should be listening to how to influence that and who's impacted by this because obviously the people that are close to these mines are the ones that are most impacted earlier you said you can't mine your way out of a climate crisis and the core roots of a lot of these problems it is it's capitalism it's extraction it is scarcity and competition for materials right so i'm curious we can't mine ourselves out of a climate crisis how do you see us addressing things like the climate crisis i don't expect that a lot of people or enough people will say can embrace a kind of return to nature way of living we've industrialized we've modernized we've urbanized so much of this country and i'm always curious when we look at these big giant challenges for not just our country but for our entire planet like we've created entire global markets around all of these things that we do so how can we feasibly without again without doing more of these damaging things to the earth maintain a kind of life that works for the people that are here right like how do you see us taking the next steps if we can't end capitalism right now what's the bridge between where we're at right now and getting to maybe not the green energy revolution that they're trying to promote right now but what would your kind of like green energy changes look like what's the better path for us i guess right i mean i get asked this question a lot and we sit here and talk about it what's the solution or alternative but what if there isn't one right what if the whole problem is that we overlook some, something that is so simple and once we realize it, it's so stupid so silly right like we're switching from fossil fuels to batteries but let's talk about like Something not a lot of people understand is that one of the main ways that these charging stations get their power is from, guess, from oil. They, they're, they're using oil to power these charging stations. Well, in turn, we're, you're using the charging station to charge your electric vehicle. 
And so it's like, well, what's really going on, right? And so it's like, well, behind that charging station, you got a big machine that's still producing fossil fuels. So it's like, well, what if there isn't a solution? What if we were overlooking something? What if there's like this piece of information that will flip it all inside out? And I think that's just it. There's something no one understands is that oil is still charging these things. And with solar panels and things, you can't charge in the dark. Wind turbines, you can't charge anything if, if it's not windy. And like, so we still have a ways to go before we're making any kind of claims of anything because there, there's a lot of changes that are happening that are in the beginning stages. And there's a lot of research still going on in the beginning, st- not beginning stages, but there are solutions like the salt battery or there, there has been things like a water-powered engine presented, not mainstream, but the guy who invented it just so happened to coincidentally pass away. And that car was never seen again. And and so we're like, well, what are the true alternatives? You I know? Mean, do you think that there are scientific or technological solutions for the climate crisis that don't have the environmental impacts that mining does? Like, do you think that there is a potential path forward through science and technology and kind of modernization to bring us out of the climate crisis? Or do you think that's a fool's gold thing that will never actually never actually happen? Like, can we solve the climate issues we've created through advancement and technology with more advancement and technology, but in a better way? Or do you think that entire path is unfeasible? Yeah, I think the more this goes on, the more the real issues will have to be disguised as benefits the true negative impacts will have to be hidden and kept away just a little bit more and by that time hopefully thinking 40 to 60 years down the road aka reclamation they're not even around so i think the whole outlook on things is being greenwashed a whole a whole different kind of way that it, it makes the simple solution it makes it look let's say it makes it look impractical, right? Like it's not logical. Like, hey, that'll never work. Like, yeah, what if we stop, pulled our foot off the throttle for a minute, right? And everything slowed down, just like we've seen in, in within the COVID pandemic, right? The stay-at-home orders were in place. People were at home. That turned the city of Los Angeles into somewhere where you could see the sky. And these are the places like like the big dense densely populated areas the cities they they can't see the stars at night right so that's what i mean it'll have to be hidden a little bit better or a little bit it will be hidden a little bit more with a little bit more smog i guess what i'm talking about is kind of like the demand thing right we all want these nice things we all want to have that luxurious comfortable lifestyle for as cheap as we can and as this goes on right to economize the economy would mean that these companies are buying in mass all these products from these other countries for pennies like cobalt they're mass buying from the hands of these mine these mining kids and they're taking it mixing it with this lithium over here from america magically rubbing it together then boom there's battery so it's like well what to economize the economy would mean that you're getting the cheapest cobalt mixed with your lithium to get you this Tesla that you can now afford, right? So to economize the economy, you're never going to get something that 
is good and great, you're always going to see something that's evolving. We see that with phones. We see that with tablets. We see that with every new make and model of every vehicle that's been made since the 90s, right? Since we're being born. How this is the most, this is, this model cell phone, the iPhone 20 is the, it's the best of its kind. And the next couple months later, it's, there's a whole different one. Yeah. And And I mean, that, that demand is invented, right? Like we don't have to have a demand for always advancing technology. That's something that is, that's marketed to us, right? Right. It's like a, like an illusion created more or less. You can see through it, right? And it's, it's called logic. You can look to the other side and be like, like what I already have is good enough, right? Like, like, like the phone I have in my pocket, I've had for two years now. It's old, yeah, but it gets the job done, right? I'm not looking for the, I'm not looking to be in compete with you who may have the iPhone 21, right? And I'm not going to feel no way if I don't have it, right? And so like, like that's what we're seeing, what we're feeling. And I know there's a lot of people that are like, oh yeah, man, I'll, let me check my pockets and look at my phone. I don't really have the newest of of the new anyways and that's okay and now we see that the transition the green energy transition affect the youth with the telephones or cell phones and the big issue with tiktok and social media and the influencers and i need to look good now i need to grow up today so we're seeing a lot of a lot of those kind of contaminants or pollutants on our populations right not just this community but within the cities, the densely populated areas, you'll see that. Go to you go to the airport, right, and you'll sit down and you'll take a look. And now it's just charging their phone, and I gotta have my phone on. And so that's something right there that that we're not necessarily used to. Speaking for like the communities that are rural or that that may not live in the city, but you know, because from right here in Hawaii, you gotta travel about 100 miles north or south to get to the nearest Walmart, which means it's out in the sticks yeah but that's just that's perfectly fine and nowadays it's like you go and talk to people in the city and it's like well i don't get to see the stars you know what it's beautiful out here and then we're like well look there's the milky way right there and it's like it's a whole different world once you start looking at once you start looking up at the stars instead of looking down at your phone right it's different and these are the places like thacker pass these are the views and landscapes and things that mother earth offered are, are the people in general and that's where our ancestors, they took their solitude and their security was, their serenity was out there on the land. And so that I think that the whole colonization thing and reser- reservations, it's to keep us looking down, right? Keep us buying what they want us to buy, that specific fashion design or that watch or electric vehicle or the new phone or the new watch or what whatever it is that they're going to keep coming out with something new. It's never the same, right? And it's okay. Like, like I'm keep saying that, like, it's okay to have a phone that you've had and you can't afford a new one because that just means you know how to take care of your stuff. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to kind of reorient people's demand from the scarce, right? There's only a certain amount of materials to make technology to the abundant. Like, we will never run out of the view of the stars as long as we don't block them out, right? right? Like, nature is abundant. And do you think it's possible? It seems 
to me, a pretty heavy lift because we have a society that is so geared towards consumerism and consumption. To address, I mean, almost all of the climate issues, they're all rooted in in scarcity and in demand for scarce materials. So do you think that it's possible culturally, and is that part of what you try to do, is shift the value judgment of what things are worth? Like, again, the mind comes in here, and what they offer is is monetary value, is something that has been assigned a dollar value, and that is what everyone expects and demands and, and what people want, and that's why they agree to things. Do you think it's possible to shift our society away from that? even though we've been kind of entrenched in it for a very long time. How do you do that? How do you basically sell people on the idea that the sky is better than their phone? Because it is for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and a lot of times. Yeah, there, I mean, the, I guess this is the commercialization of mother nature, right? Is like, well, they, like in, in a way, the things like water wars or like, like if they try to, like you can't buy water like, like to, to, the traditional people, like a lot of tribes see like like water, like you can't buy water. You can't put a price on water. You can't, in, in that same context, you can't buy dirt. You can't buy the wind. You can't buy the air. You can't buy the stars, but they'll try. And that plays with like when they say you're only able to use 10% of your brain and the other 90% is what they try to use. We're figuring out that we can use, we can use more of this area we can use more of what's out there and when i say that i guess you can label that as a commercialization right through things like tourist sites right like one of one of the big things one of the big downfalls for this economy here is that it is far from everywhere and if they were to put something mainstream here next to this community would it be able to sustain itself or would it collapse? Hey there, listeners. I hope you are enjoying this episode. I'm interrupting just briefly to let you know how you can help Renoites continue to exist. This is a listener-funded podcast. It only exists because of word of mouth from listeners telling their friends about the show and financial support from some of our listeners. I have an account on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Renoites. It's a site where you can contribute even as little as a couple dollars a month to help make the show sustainable. So I hope you will check that out on Patreon and consider throwing a couple bucks my way to make sure that the show can continue to exist. Shout out to some of my current patrons who really go above and beyond in allowing this show to be financially sustainable. Vicky Musney from DJ Trivia, Mike Van Houten from Downtown Makeover, a fantastic blog about development in the downtown area, Sam Olson from the Olson Group with Remax Gold Real Estate in Midtown, John Blair, and my newest patron, Chris Riley, thank you so much for supporting the show. It really makes a huge difference to have a little bit of financial support for a project like this. And now, back to the episode. Do you think that there are benefits to growth and economic development and the things that companies pitch as inherent goods for towns, for cities? Again, the mind is coming in. Mm -hmm. The assumption is that economic growth, that jobs is the big pitch, is will bring jobs. Is there benefit to growth? Is there healthy growth? I mean, people are born all the time. Our population is growing, but you know, we cannot grow endlessly. I hear this comparison with cancer. Cancer is something that grows endlessly and then it kills you. So humans are continuing to grow. We are, there's a lot of us on this planet and that's not going to stop or slow down. So is do you believe in healthy growth? Is that a thing that can happen? Or how do we manage the inevitability 
of growth in our communities and in our country and just in general. Through the people, if more of our communities got together the way that, you know, in in a more human sense, a more connected sense, instead of being divided, instead of having these barriers or borders keeping us separate, that that was all lifted, right? It, everyone would be the same. Everybody would imagine a place where, you know, I could, like if, when we do this prayer horse ride, in this prayer horse ride I'm talking about is something that a group of us, we felt like we wanted to bring to a reality based on the things that we've learned about generational trauma and where we want to go and what's our stance on things today. So so an event like the prayer, a prayer horse ride is something that we, we started last year where we ride horseback from indigenous community to our, let's say, reservation to reservation. And the idea there is to bring healing to our people because 365 days is a long time and anything can happen. Every day is different. And so that, that plays into the whole idea of healing and what are we going to do? What have we learned from the last time? And we know what we learned from the last time we tried to be with our people, to be with one another, our relatives, and not be stuck on the reservation, right? And when we, we talk about these events, imagine like 40 to 60 years down the road, instead of having mining, what if we were given the opportunity or the ambition to go out and make a difference? Our people, the, pe the people, all of us. To us, there's only one race, the human race. Imagine all of us humans that cared about the condition we live in today and where our seven generations are going to be down the road. What if we built solidarity or built relationships and connections and kinships with those ancient ties, right? And we're honoring our ancestors by knowing our roots, following those same paths that our ancestors once did to do it in a good way, to continue to do it. And nowadays, I myself, you know, how I'm so advocate about resisting and opposing these projects is because I was one of the tribal enrolled members who was kind of lured, or I mean enticed into the money because it's all because it's work and around here you know work is scarce a fast way to get money a fast way to to get that truck you've always wanted is to cheat to use that cheat code all right i'm gonna go and apply at the mine and the way that that the mining people are seeing it now is that, all right we're big enough now that we can accept any of these applications and we'll chew them up we'll work them here work them there we'll send them here send them there working 12 hour around the clock right and so involuntary servitude again so our whole idea back in when I was working for Barrett Gold, right, which is now Nevada Gold by Cortez, we were stationed out in Battle Mountain and what we were doing was clear cutting. Sad to say, that was one of the jobs I had. We were working out in the mountains four days out of the week, 10 hour shifts. And we had, we had a quota of amount of acres we were supposed to clear cut per day. And by the end of the week, we had better cleared that amount or more and so a lot of us it was like all right we're making money and that's what it that's what it did you know it i brought money home to my family i was able to to, to buy new things in elko on my way back home for my kids and it only lasted a little while all the way up until i, I found out well i'm an adult now and i can do whatever i want with this money it's mine i worked for it nobody's gonna tell me how i can spend it and so that whole mentality, that whole ego thing at being young with that much money, you cheated on getting that money in a way is how it was. And 
all the things that I had. Don't get me wrong. I'm I in high school. I used to write rap music, right? And you could find me on YouTube. I have some songs on YouTube, but that was over 15 years ago now and that's something that I did to keep myself out of trouble and the things that I talked about in those lyrics had a lot to do with life around here on the reservation and the things I encountered so the behind the scenes how I got the equipment the microphone the recording studio to do that was through working for that mine work not working for the mine but like when I was out there right I was a tribal tribal monitor Right? I was out there supposed to be looking for artifacts. They said, artifacts. You go out there and you find artifacts and then you write it down, mark where you found it, and then you bring your paper back to the office at 4 o'clock and then you turn it in and you're going to get, that's your timesheet. And if, if you're out there doing it by the book, right? All right, yeah, I'm going to get paid. I'm going to mark this arrowhead that I found. I'm going to mark this, mark this grinding stone that I found. And then they go out there and they set up their archaeologist site they start excavating and we found artifacts. I found different arrowheads. I left them because thinking that, all right, if I leave it, no damage will be done. I'm not picking it up. I'm not letting them know where it is. They're not going to dig it. They're going to leave it where exactly where it is. But the fact that I left it there, it was probably buried by bulldozers or exploded by dynamite to expand that mining site. And clear-cutting pinions and juniper trees, man, you know, there was, that's what the, our people, that was their nutrients throughout the wintertime. That's something that they ate and they dried and they powdered. And it's looked at as medicine in that way because you're real hungry. You have, you have that. That's what those trees had provided for you. And so th that was like, all right, a remedy for starvation was we have this that's medicine so th those are the things that were taken from the landscape and so each of these expansions each of these projects from this point on is going to be on ancestral tribal land and if nobody is there to catch them or anybody there to hold accountability this whole history of Shoshone of Paiute of who was here in the land and who were our allies is gonna sink Right, And so that's why it's really important to, to remember these things. Because now, when I sit here, when I talk about the 1800s, 1860s, today, it's different. It's like, like spiritually, I could feel how if looking back and understanding what happened to our people, to my family back in those days, and where we are today and what this mine is doing to our family today. It's like, well, this is the green energy transition that's so good and so great for everything that everybody must have it. And but we do have a we do have a voice we do have we do still have culture and history and we're still protecting it and we're still trying to preserve as much of the land as possible yeah how long have you been working more on the opposition to the mines and more of the protecting the land what has that process been like kind of shifting into a more activist role around this stuff it's beautiful it's enlightening i wouldn't have it any other way me working as a tribal monitor all those years ago, you know how they say you you need to have a life experience, right? And that's something that experience or knowledge is something that they're not passing these. When I was working for those that as a tribal monitor, they didn't educate us. They didn't tell us. They didn't school us on history or what a white arrowhead meant. But now today, after growing up, after 
talking and sitting with many people, you know, in different tribes, different areas in Nevada. Things like we White Knife. There, there's a band of Shoshone warriors that were in the area. And, man, I seen many of them still intact, still, like, it just fell out of my pocket, right? And those are the things I left there, thinking it's okay. And so a big thing is educating. And part of the horse ride is healing, educating our people, and bringing awareness to our communities as to what we're doing. And there's other options rather than you're a duck on water, right? Like we're all, we're, we all look okay on the surface, but underneath is like, well, we're, our families are, we're all related, but you know, it's that we're living in this, in this time and age now where we have to be in competition with each other and we don't even realize it, right? We all want to have nicer cars. We all want to have better phone, better this and that. But it's the fact that those of us that have that, that life experience or we're able to see things like, well, this is, even though all this is going on, duck on water, it's like, well, it's beautiful, right? Because you know what? We learn how to swim, right? We learn how to swim without getting wet. That's why I refer to that. This is Duck Valley, right? We swim without getting wet. And so... The whole idea is to bring awareness and to educate our youth and to make it make their dreams possible because I know having the having role models around here right that are going in a positive direction and out there in in the world and being followed being heard those are the barriers that we need to break down and so that way it's easier for the next younger person who wants to come up and they meet that same barrier it's not as hard for them to do it and those are the things that i think us doing this work is the beautiful part about it is we have these ideas to help our communities to to bring to sponsor our youth through things like art and teaching teaching different things and taking them places and building that solidarity with each community and I mean, things like the prayer horse ride are put into motion those are our foundation those are the things that our people are using now to revitalize ourselves and to bring hope and to bring inspiration and bring change bring change to our community let's do something different let's build something grassroots something strong something worth living for right because they're not telling us why we're working for all this material stuff. But you know what? Let me tell you why we're doing all these gatherings. Let me tell you what you're working for this. for. Let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me lead by example. Let me let you can catch on too. There's a place for everybody. And it comes to like helping somebody where they need help. Thinking like a human being. Because nowadays we're seeing a lot of things on social media. A lot of videos and a lot of videos where people need help. A lot of people where people are... are giving homeless people money for on on their cameras for clout for likes and we need more people out on the streets that that know how to talk and sit with those people and help them out in their hardships and hit them with something different like like a song or something like kind words or gestures or helping hand or you know what you looking for something to do hey we have this event going on you know it's through that that willingness to to be a leader right to help out whoever's around because there's going to come a time there's going to become a place where each of us are presented with with a scenario like that where you're going to have to do something good and no one's going to be looking no one's going to be watching and it's all up to you to make that choice and to help somebody and 
that feeling that you get, that fuel that you get in your heart, that right there is something that we're fighting for. That spiritual blessing is a way to put it, but it's that spark of life that we all have. And it's taking things like a lithium mine and it's all its ugliness to to show how beautiful these communities are because that's something that we weren't ever presented with was big mind like that and that made us ask ourselves what do we have who are we what are where do we come from what what actually happened and so the normalization of these topics and these keywords and these discussions right and those are the dots now thinking for yourself and using more than 10% of your brain right let's get to let's use 90% and let's see what happens, you know, we're, we're all over the place. I'm over here. A lot of the supporters and things are from around this side of the United States, but from around the world, that's why we call them relatives is we can relate to one another. We're in the same boat, my relatives, and we're trying everything we can. And we're not going to let, you know, these boundaries and these imaginary lines restrict us from helping each other when we need it. And that's something that we have to do for free we don't get handouts for it we don't get paid we don't get we don't get nothing more than that fuel and that's something that comes from mother nature that's something that comes from the universe that comes from something simple as helping and th those are the things that we want the modern society today to understand about our ancestors is that you know we weren't savages we weren't none of those things we cared about each other you know nobody went hungry in our community around our villages you know somebody came in asking for help let's help them and that's how our people still are today that's how my grandmas are today that's exactly how i guess our ancestors had prayed for things to be just to continue to live that lifestyle where you help people you don't take advantage of people who, who need help you don't go and wave uh wave money in front of people's hands who have been living in poverty because you're not educating them. You're not drawing, you're just giving them and it's destroying our communities more than it's helping. And it's something like I had mentioned on when we went for that stroll earlier is let's talk about the dreams, not the nightmares. And so on, on the enlightening, enlightening side of all this Thacker Pass and this protesting and resistance is that, yeah, we prayed a lot for everybody and it's not just our fight, it's everyone's fight. And it goes around the world. And that kindness and that compassion that, that we must show towards ourselves is the same that we must show towards the rivers, towards we must show towards the springs and the relatives that use those things like that to keep their systems going too, the trout or the salmon or just that ecosystem that that is natural, that is out there. And nowadays, a lithium mine is claiming to be right there beside it as as healthy and as actually better for everything. Let's put this mind up and whatever comes out of this is supposed to be great, like a unicorn fart, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, that kind of gives a lot of insight to the way the thought process is and how it, it's, how it really is being being alive today when our ancestors, I hope that they're able to they're able to continue to look over us all in that way that while there's this ancient evil that has always been and it's called colonization being forced on the people and it's like well we don't have a choice we don't have a choice to do anything other than go with the flow and that's where 
we draw the line. And so we live out in the middle of nowhere to where, yeah, it time does stop out here. Time did slow down. And then once you jump back into the groove in the city, then that's when things are, you get things like DoorDash or you're, you're hungry now and you're like, oh man, I'm hungry. I think I'm going to order me a pizza. And that's how fast and that's how things are. But around here, it's like, well, we got to really think about it. Do we really want that pizza? Do we really want to make that drive to go and get it? And so that it's, it's a really food for thought. So there's enough there. And I don't think that any of this information's on that silver platter. But this, I guess, is a makeshift platter that is there. It's visible and it's logical and it's okay. It's perfectly fine to be having your own ideas. And the way that we think about this green energy transition is great. It's, it really isn't green. It's here to take a lot more than it's going to give back. And it's the people who are going to own it that are, some of us are talking against it now. And we can use the support in ways like like help us out with with writing to these politicians that are in 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 those seats or if you're not not formal or anything write solidarity statements to these environmentally friendly universities or accredited colleges or schools or universities or organizations and come together and talk about how beautiful mother earth is without a lithium mine without them depleting the water supply and talk about how beautiful your area is and how you don't want you don't want places like Thacker Pass to become sacrificed in the name of lithium demand or the green energy transition you know don't be fooled that's the whole thing and that's the normalization that's the for the general public this is something a lot of the information I'm talking about I just spoke about are are the things that they skipped in the fast tracking process and so you know this is something that they would have had to cram into 5 10 15 minutes worth of testimony and this is something that we all can talk about every day all day it's something that that we do think about all day and so now with it out there with the listeners getting a little under understanding and insight now it's it is also your information and now it is for the general public and it's okay. That's what our, this is what we do without being asked, without being told to taking the initiative to compile and do all the research and be here, be present. So you don't have to let us kind of interpret it for you in non-complicated language, you know, because we're not, majority of us aren't lawyers and a lot of us aren't university graduates or we don't hold degrees. And a lot of us aren't able to have the platform to to speak their mind. And so I think that there's a lot of people that will be hearing this and listening to this that that hopefully they're inspired by what they heard and they're able to support in that way. And this is, I think they can take this as the confirmation as, you know what, all right, I think I've heard enough of the logical explanations of things that I think that this green energy transition shouldn't happen. I think Lithium America's they need those they need to back off and the federal judge she needs to vacate those permits and there's just not enough out there not enough of these discussions that happened yet between our people all of us all of us humans all of us that care and so that's what i what i i think is one of the one of one of the beautiful things about this work is being able to interpret it and do the research and, and so yeah yeah, with all this information and context and more background for people that they probably are not aware of, it seems like there's two different c- ways of communicating about it. There's kind of like broad public awareness. So we see that in social media. We see that hashtag just kind of 
the without the details, but the general broad awareness society wide around these issues. Mm-hmm. And then there also seems to be the need for kind of targeted and focused persuasion to the people who can make decisions, right? The people who have their ability to slow things down, to stop things, to block things. So for regular listeners, maybe they don't have access to to try to persuade a judge or they don't have contacts in university systems. And the only way they can do awareness is in the kind of like traditional social media kind of way. But for people who may have more initiative to try to take actions to stop things or to slow things down or to have more of an impact than just general awareness, mm-hmm. what do you think the best way is to do that? Is it to go to protests? Is it to start by learning more about how this whole process works so that they know where they kind of can slot in to make a difference? Just like, what are the most directly impactful ways that people can make an immediate difference themselves, not just with Mm -hmm. broad awareness, but with like specific actions? All right. Yeah. I think pretty solid way to do that is, 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 I know we've got a billboard there in Reno that says life over lithium. And so social media wise on those platforms, a good thing to do is to blow up that algorithm, right? Hashtag life over lithium. There's quite a number of posts with that hashtag there. So feel free to to write up something and put that out there. And the more that people see, the more that people read, the more that people view these little videos or listen to these podcasts or radio stations, the better. And copy, paste the link into your, your social media. What are you thinking Right. Well, I think I should put this link here. And so it's there. So people are able to see it and share it, listen to it. And it's easy, right? That's probably one of the advantages that we have as people, as part of our rights, freedom of press, freedom of speech. Those things are there for us for these reasons, right? To keep our people informed and with things like hashtags, you know, it's, they're all compiled into one place. And so Life Over Lithium, I all, I have some videos with that hashtag on my YouTube channel, Life Over Lithium. They're all grouped up. Click that hashtag and you'll see all the videos and things that have anything relative to Thacker Pass and what it is. And so we'd love to see a lot of the outside support and allies with your information, with your stories or your points of view, really your narratives under that hashtag, Life Over Lithium. And keep that algorithm going. And that's something that comes from from within the frontline communities is life over lithium. And so it means loyalty over royalty. We, we know where we come from. We know who we are as a people. We know how strong we are. We know how beautiful life can be over lithium. Let's not be distracted. Let's not sacrifice these beautiful places. Let's not take advantage of each other. Being loyal is the big one. That's something that, you know, as people, that's what we look for in a good friend, in a good companion, in in good people that we trust. We don't want to see any more of that, any more sacrifice zones. We don't want to see any more indigenous relatives feel like they can't have anything or say they don't have a say, they don't have a voice. Life over lithium is a way to for you to kind of voice that on your social media. And that's something that I myself had thought up and I've used it in a number of, of places. And so... They're making it a an international lithium thing is life over lithium. And so there there's going to be a lot more people that understand what it means. And so that's something that's out there. And 
there's podcasts and we'll try to keep it keep it that way and if it's coming from a life or over lithium standpoint then it's coming from the people of red mountain and the descendants of the paiute and shoshone nation there and by the fort mcdermott indian reservation and to all our relations in these other communities in all directions and no matter where you are, where you live, if you're enrolled or not, is is that life part. And so hashtag it. But, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of environmental arguments and a lot of things that, like the endangered Kings River Perg snail, that, that need attention, that needs, the story there needs to be amplified. And if you, the Kings River Perg is found in only 13 springs in within the Thacker Pass proposal site, within those boundaries, there's 13 springs with that endangered snail in it. And so it needs your needs the public attention because it must not be forgotten what's there too. And that mine goes up. It's killing off that snail for eternity. And so think about that before, before getting an electric vehicle or upgrading or getting the newest of the new. From this point on, they're having to desecrate from this point on, they're having to endanger species. From this point on, they're taking more and more water. And so this whole balance is going to come back full circle at some point, And it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be in the form of more climate crisis. And it's something that that we can see from our perspective is the something that we we have to catch right now right and we all we're all having it having it discussed right what's the current status of the thacker pass mine we're recording this near the end of january but the episode won't be out for a few weeks so what's the current status i know there's a judge i think in reno who has a decision to make i know that there's various challenges to it so what's happening right now with the permits and the likelihood of the mine and what are the next steps that people should be looking out for happening that they can stay in touch with and see what's going on and get involved yeah judge miranda do wasn't able to make a conclusive decision on january 5th and i think she's got a lot of pressure she's got a lot of under a lot of pressure and so where it actually is, is that there shouldn't be any kind of construction any kind of digging going on at thacker pass within those boundaries but leave it up to the 1872, leave it to these permits, leave it to the lithium companies to figure out ways to go under that. And so, like I say, it's, it's, it's only, it's a ticking time bomb, right? There's accountability there. You, it's it's going to come back on them, right? And right now the judge is hanging on a thread, right? And what they're talking about is vacating those permits. And vacating those permits would mean they have to withdraw everything that they've done in regards to those permits. They have to start at square one, which is redo that environmental impact statement. And that resets the game, resets the chessboard. All the pieces are back and start into starting position, aka all the pawns are back. And so whoever decides to be the pawn is up to the leaders who then... I guess the game goes on and so for right now that's the that's the point that the environmental fight is in we have outstanding people like the 
Great Basin Resource Watch or the Basin Range Watch too. Those are two different, both with the same type name. The two environmental organizations that are holding accountability on all the bent rules and all the bending rules. And so before those rules end up breaking all the way, right? So they're putting a lot of time into into the pit lakes and things, reclamation and the cancer rates. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts to this whole thing. So it, it all adds up to pressure on Judge Miranda do to make the right decision to put it in a in a way, you know, that's, you know, frank is that if she if she decides to roll with the permits and allow this project to continue, it's desecrating our ancestral burial sites and desecrating massacre sites. It'll be taking water from Orvada, from the Kings River ranches uh, for the next 60 years and... What will be left will be will have to be owned by the people of McDermott, the Indian Reservation right there, and Orvada and Kings River, and Winnemucca, and those are the things right there that that's all on her. If she makes that decision to allow this mine to go in this sloppy way to continue in this roughshod kind of way and add to the problem, that's all on her. But she does have a decision where she can stop all this. She can stop the human rights violations. She can ask them all to step back. She could, she could do that. She can say no, just like these other leaders in position today. But why don't they? It's They don't want to disappoint the money. They don't want, they don't want to not get paid. They're happy with what, with what their job is. So for the next few months, look for... Look for the Bureau of Land Management making changes to what they're allowing out there because there's things in the news that's coming from South Nevada about these. They're still doing work on the endangered buckwheat flower and the BLM is all of a sudden starting to crack down on those infractions and so we want accountability held on those lithium company workers that's out there at Thacker Pass that's behind the scenes secretly moving this project forward through illegal digging through old permits that's those are the things that we're dealing with that the landscape is putting up with and so yeah judge miranda dew's got a lot on her plate and it isn't a silver platter so it's quite ugly as a matter of fact (laughs) it doesn't shine there's still a lot more to be discussed there there's a lot more to the environmental impact statement that wasn't included and until all that stuff is put on the forefront, right, there's room for discussion between everybody. We're looking at doing a docuseries with the CBS, and we're doing live radio shows, and we're going outside of Nevada, and we're going outside of, outside of this country itself. You know, we're putting this information, we're putting these uh, this narrative out into the universe, and we're not silent no more. We're idle no more here in northern Nevada, in Shoshone Paiute country here, in Paiute Shoshone country over there. Bannock country over there, you know, we're we're still alive and well, and I think you know the new age warriors today are starting to come out with with their drums, and a lot of the the warriors are coming out today, and they're starting to dance more, and so that's what we want to keep on doing is keep singing, keep dancing, and keep coming out to these gatherings and showing solidarity, and keep building that peace because that's who we are, that's who our children are that's who we want our children to be is in in the spirit of of our own leaders in the spirit of our fallen ancestors who who only wanted to 
provide and live simply the way that that they always had and since time memorial in places like Thacker Pass and places around Duck Valley and, and south, southwest Idaho and Oregon and so yeah it's vibrant rich history and there's a lot to it and the there's a lot of history with Thacker Pass itself, but it's all got to be broken into segments. I think I think that as this fight goes on or this lawsuit goes on, I think there there will be time to continue the discussion with this podcast and to kind of get a keep this discussion alive like like Thacker Pass, you know, who was Thacker? Why does it have that name? We'll give them pieces about it like Thacker Pass was most likely the name of the name given to the area after the Humboldt County Sheriff, whose name was John Thacker, John Nelson Thacker, born in 1835 in Missouri. And he came out west and became the sheriff for Humboldt County there, Humboldt County, Nevada, in the 1860s. And he was the guy who brought the cavalry there from Dunn Glen, which is now off the freeway, almost to Winnemucca. It's called Imlay now. And there's museums there, and, and that's where John Thacker had his horse ranch. There was a horse ranch there, and if you look off into the landscape there, there's a Black Rock Desert, and that Black Rock Desert is where a lot of the transporting was going, the the mail route and the railroad was going across Nevada. And so as the railroad came, John Thacker was a, a, he was a detective for the Wells Fargo company and Wells Fargo Express, I guess. And throughout time, he wrote a book. He wrote a book. There's over 390-something train robberies that had happened. And this is some of the history, some of the non-native history that, that could be provided. And that's who John Thacker was. And Charlie Thacker was in one of the stories it has in there that that John Thacker spared the lives of two Paiute children, one being Charlie, one being one being the other one. I, it's a hit and miss for me on the other brother's name, but I know Charlie Thacker became a interpreter or became an Indian agent later down the road for here in Duck Valley. So Duck Valley was uh, here. There's a lot of relatives of Charlie Thacker or a lot of descendants from him, and his brother didn't have any children. And so Charlie took the last name of his adoptive father, who was John. And on newspaper.com, I have, a, I have an account on there, Gary underscore McKinney. And if you're willing to go look at that stuff, I compiled a lot of art- articles, a lot of newspaper clippings to with tags, John Thacker or Thacker Pass. And they're all there for the public, right? I did all the hard work, all the researching, all the tagging, all the labeling for you. And so there's the website, newspapers.com. Look up Gary underscore McKinney and you'll find each and every one of these narratives I'm talking about. The Bannock War, the Snake War, the History of Thacker Pass, Charlie Thacker. Well, this stuff that I just mentioned is on there. And so you're welcome to go look at it. So Awesome. And remind people where they can find your website or social media. Where else can people find you? Go to peopleofredmountain.com. You'll find all the hot links there. Articles is pretty current. I myself, you could find me on Facebook. I have a lot of material on there related to Thacker Pass and Pahimaha. Uh, Gary McKinney on Facebook, follow me, and I promise to keep the information flowing. Promise to keep things relevant. I promise to keep those the information 
about the negative impacts of lithium mining there for you so you can have it there to share and look at and read. And to stay informed is the main thing that it's there for you for. And yeah, just Gary McKinney on Facebook, simple as that. So yeah, you can find me on those two things, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for in- inviting us out here to talk to you and to learn so much more about this. Like I said, this is my first time in this part of the state, and I really value the opportunity to to learn about to you and your background and a lot of the environmental issues that I think people probably don't come out this far necessarily all the time to have these conversations. So I was glad to be able to come out here and learn a lot from you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Renoites, and special thanks to my guest, Gary McKinney from People of Red Mountain. If you want to learn more about People of Red Mountain, you can find them at peopleofredmountain.com. I appreciate the opportunity to go out to Owyhee and learn more about the proposed lithium mine at Thacker Pass and the potential impacts on the environment and the people up there. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and spread the word. Word of mouth means everything for a podcast like this. So tell your friends, tell your family. I always post new episode posts on Instagram. Just sharing those with your Instagram following makes a huge, huge difference. You definitely have friends that I do not have. And if they don't hear about the show from you, they might not hear about it at all. So thank you so much for your word of mouth support. Also consider joining on Patreon to support the show financially. And if you have any suggestions for guests, always feel free to reach out. Connor at Renoites.com. This season of Renoites is produced by myself, Connor McQuivy, as well as Lynn Lazaro and Ember Braun. Thank you so much to them. And that's all we've got for you this week. See you next time. <laughs>